might owe all of you a little bit of an explanation. We came back in July for season two with great fanfare, turned Laura into a fledgling Savor buff over the course of four and a half beardy, <laughs> dirt-smeared hours, and then promptly disappeared again. Thank you for sticking with us during these past three months. In July, my mom was diagnosed with a recurrence of lung cancer, and while she's fine and I'm fine, I really needed to let something drop for a minute. And Laura, most gracious human in the world, let me do that, even though she really, really, really loves this podcast. Like, a slightly frightening amount. But we're back, and this time we're really back, and we're looking forward to sharing a consistent two episodes a month for season two. Get ready for some beloved seasonal favorites coming up, and for us to get to some of your recommendations. And with that... Welcome back to Costume Drama Rewind for another round of Spooky October. Today we're talking about one specific segment, Hoichi the Earless, from the 1964 Japanese anthology film Kwaidan. It was directed by Kobayashi Masaki, and this particular segment stars Nakamura Katsuo, Tanba Tetsuro, and Shimura Takashi. This story begins in the spring of 1185 with the Battle of Danaura, the final battle of the Genpei War, which was essentially a civil war between the Taira, or Heike, clan and the Minamoto, or Genji clan. The Taira family followed this precedent that was established about 400 years before in gaining power by marrying their daughters into the Japanese imperial family. Taira no Kiyomori was basically ruling the country with his six-year-old grandson, Emperor Antoku, on the throne. In response to the Taira removing their rivals from government positions and Kiyomori attacking Buddhist temples and monks, the Minamoto rally the Taira's political enemies together, and they fight back. This war wages on for about five years, and eventually the Taira, who have fled the capital, Kyoto, and taken Ontoku with them, are pushed out far into western Japan, to the Straits of Shimonoseki, where the islands of Honshu and Kyushu just about meet. When the Taira see that they're going to lose this last stand, they drown themselves rather than be captured and subject to gruesome torture. Very low energy. Harsh. Kiyomori's widow grabs her grandson, the emperor, her attendants grab hold of the three imperial insignia of Japan, and drown themselves in the Straits of Shimonoseki. Flash forward to sometime after 1240, during what appears to be the Kamakura period, which starts in 1185 and ends in 1333, and as the narrator tells us, the building of the Amadaji Temple, which was supposed to placate the Taira ghosts, apparently hasn't worked 100%. They're causing the deaths of fishermen and sailors, and their ghost lights, which are called onibi in Japanese, can be seen at night on the water and the shore. Meanwhile, we meet our protagonist, Hoichi, played by Nakamura Katsuo. He's a blind Biwa player, and he's just started living at the Amadaji Temple, which is not far from the site of the battle, because he's desperately poor. His specialty is playing The Tale of the Heike, which is a very long epic, partially set to music, about the Genpei War. One night, he's on the porch of the temple, playing the beginning of the Don Nor Ora part of the tale of the Heike, and that's where the film gets interesting, because we can see what Hoichi can't. A warrior with a mysteriously ghostly-looking face, played by Tamba Testoro, appears out of nowhere and requests that he come play the tale of the Heike for his lord, who is staying in the area and has been surveying the battle site. The warrior leads him to what appears to be a mansion marked with the Tyra butterfly. When we go inside, it appears to be just a dilapidated shell of a building built around a cemetery with battered Tyra war banners hanging down and fog everywhere. He gets back the next morning, and the other temple residents are confused as to what's going on. Over a series of nights, the same events take place again, and we learn that the warrior has sworn him to secrecy. 
Everybody has their theory as to what he's been up to or who he's been up to. But they all note that he's starting to look ghostly pale, like seriously gray and ashy. The next night, during a terrible rainstorm, much like tonight, one of the servants, Yasuku, lets the head priest, played by Shimura Takashi, know that Hoichi's gone again. The priest has Yasuko and his buddy Matsuzo follow Hoichi, which takes them through the cemetery, and then they freak out. Hoichi's arrived at the mansion again with the warrior. It's not rainy there. Instead, it appears to be daylight, with the blue sky everywhere, and the mansion appears to be more ornate, with the banners no longer in tatters. He's seated on a platform in the Great Hall, which has been flooded with water. And then the Emperor Antoku and his retinue reveal themselves. They request that he plays the Battle of Dano-Ura piece. While he's playing, the tired ghosts essentially relive the events of the battle silently in the Great Hall, with images of fire replacing the sky. I feel like I read this book at one point, only it was called Ghost Cadet, and took place in Newmarket, Virginia. When Hoichi gets to the part of the song in which Antoku and his family drown, Yasaku and Matsuzo come upon him and were shaken back into reality. Hoichi is playing in front of the Tyra clan's gravestones, and the Oni bee float around him. Being blind, he has no idea about any of this, and he thinks they've barged in on an important party. They drag him off to the head priest, who is hella pissed. <laughs> Turns out that since Hoichi's been following orders from ghosts, they're gonna possess him and then kill him. And they're gonna be short one servant. The only way to save him is to paint the text of the Heart Sutra all over his body. He then has to wait on the porch as usual. Because of the scriptures painted on, he'll be invisible to the ghosts, but he has to be completely quiet or else he'll get ripped apart by the ghosts. So the ghostly warrior rolls up, calls for him, and can't find him, but oh wait, Hoichi's ears are visible because they never got anything painted on them. The warrior decides to take just his ears to show the emperor as proof that he did the job. So Hoichi has to remain entirely silent while the warrior rips his ears off. The staff of the temple find him the next morning alive but bleeding heavily. You know, obviously. News about this gets around, and a group of local lords visit the temple to hear him play. As the gifts to the temple start stacking up, Hoichi pledges his life to performing the Tale of the Heika as a way to mourn the Tyra ghosts. First impressions... Laura has been talking my, pardon the pun, ear off about this film for about a year and a half. Asian cinema isn't something that I've spent much time with. So it was an interesting change of pace, certainly a very languid pace, that builds tension extremely well, but I really did have to watch this movie more than once to get it. It took some work to watch, which I enjoyed and appreciated. I watched quite on in full for the first time, right before the pandemic, in my living room with the lights turned off. And I was utterly spellbound by the artistry of the entire production. Since then, I've learned a lot more about Japanese culture and history, so watching it this time around, I had a much better appreciation. So let's get down to the heart of the matter. The song that we hear Hoichi perform, The Battle of Don no Ura, is a real song, and the epic that it belongs to, The Tale of the Heika, is also real. The Tale of the Heika is all about the downfall of the prideful Taira clan and the karma that they face due to the sins of the family patriarch, Taira no Kiyomori. It chronicles the major battles, the deaths of key figures, and even teases the beginning of another karmic circle with the Minamoto clan killing each other off after conquering their Tyra enemies. The poem ends with Antoku's mother, Kenremonin, who was stopped by Minamoto forces from drowning herself with her son, dying several years later and being welcomed into paradise. As Hoichi says, it's extremely long and meant to be performed over a series of nights. Parts of it are set to music and song with Biwa accompaniment. 
Versions of this epic began appearing around 1240, with the most popular version written down in 1371. In this film, Horchi himself is really an archetype. He's a blind monk whose specialty is playing the tale of the Heka on the Biwa. Blindness is associated with the Biwa, with a guild for blind musicians who are dedicated to telling this story. And in this culture at this time, the blind were also thought to have special connections with the spirit world. Additionally, the popularity of the Biwa boomed because of the tale of the Heka, so that the musical style itself came to be known as Hekiyoku, or Heka music. It was extremely hard to find any real information in English about the specific Amadaji temple from the story, so I was really thrilled to find Dr. Naoko Gunji's PhD dissertation called Amadaji, Mortuary Art, Architecture, and Rites of Emperor Antoku's Temple. Basically, I got all my information from here. The Amadaji Temple had been built in 859, but after the end of the Genpei War in 1185, it was turned into the memorial site for the emperor because he and his retinue were buried there and because it was in view of the battle site. In the early years following the Battle of Danura, Buddhist nuns who knew him personally, including some Taira women, were in charge of private rituals for his soul. Minamoto no Yoritomo, one of the rivals to the Taira, started sending Buddhist monks who were Taira family members to the temple in order to better appease the spirits. Copies of the Tale of the Heike were dedicated at the temple for years afterwards. During the Meiji Restoration in the 1800s, when the shogun was removed to give more power to the emperor, the government promoted the Shinto religion and persecuted Buddhists. As a result, the temple got destroyed and the Shinto Akama Shrine replaced it as a tribute to Antoku. To this day, there's this annual memorial ceremony for him on the anniversary of his death. And on the grounds of the shrine, there's a statue of Hoichi playing his biwa and facing the battle site. On July 15th, the Hoichi Festival, they move his statue to the graveyard and a biwa player performs part of the tale of the Heike. Dr. Gunji writes that according to Buddhist beliefs, because the Taira drowned themselves, they didn't get to reach the afterworld. Instead, they became both a political and a very personal threat as they turned into vengeful ghosts, or Anroyo. Signs of their vengeance included a major earthquake, a grave illness for Emperor Go Shirakawa, and the death of their enemy, Minamoto no Yoritomo. As a result, there were rituals held all over Japan meant to appease these angry Taira souls. The tale of the Heike was written as part of this. Even Antoku's name is tied to this attempt at calming his ghost. In life, his name is actually Tokohito Shino. After death, they gave him the name Antoku, which means peaceful virtue, as a means of turning him into a benevolent spirit. While over the centuries, placating him became less of a priority, since those who'd actually caused his death were gone, ghost stories about the Tyra remained, especially throughout the 16 and 1700s. So now that we've talked about some very niche parts of Japanese history, we're going to turn to an Irish Greek guy named Lafcadio Hearn. Best name ever. That was my line. Yeah, well, you dropped the ball. (laughs) According to Zach Davidson, author of Yurei, the Japanese Ghost, when talking about Yurei, all roads eventually lead to Lafcadio Hearn. In Japan, the two words are almost synonymous. Hearn was a journalist in the latter half of the 19th century, and he had cut his teeth professionally in the U.S. In 1890, he moved to Japan to work, first as a journalist, but then later as a teacher. He eventually became a Japanese citizen, married a woman named Koizumi Setsuko, changed his name to Koizumi Yakumo, and became a Buddhist. He was enthralled with Japanese folktales. 
and who was worried that the traditional culture was under threat from the Meiji government's efforts to modernize. So he wrote down several volumes worth of these folktales, in particular ghost stories, saving them from being forgotten. The most famous of these compilations is Kwaidon, which is an archaic term for ghost story. Today, it's pronounced Kaidon. The movie Kwaidon features four vignettes, two including Hoichi the Earless from this book, with the other two coming from other volumes of his works. So I want to talk about a bit of recent history. A decade ago, as you'll probably recall, Japan suffered an earthquake and tsunami that killed at least 20,000 people. In the years since, many people in the areas most affected have reported a surge in supernatural encounters. NPR interviewed Richard Lloyd Perry, the Asia editor for the Times of London and the author of a book about these experiences, and the stories he uncovered are fascinating and disturbing. He recounts one tale of a dead woman who would visit old friends in their temporary housing and sit down for a cup of tea, leaving dampness on the cushion when she departed. In another story he recounts, a taxi driver picked up a man asking to be taken to an address that no longer existed, having been wiped away by the tsunami, only to find halfway through the journey that his passenger in the rear seat had become invisible. One person he talked to became afraid to leave his house in the rain when he began seeing disembodied eyes in water puddles. And a Buddhist priest he interviewed dealt with more than one case of what he believed to be possession by the spirits of those who died in the tsunami. Perry takes some pains to point out that one isn't required to believe in the supernatural to consider these stories. These communities went through some major trauma, and the brain does strange things in processing that. I'd read about these stories years ago when the book first came out, and they all came flooding back while watching The Tale of Hoichi the Earless. The idea of sorrowful spirits who want to rest, and their interactions with the living, and their attempts to find some form of peace and connection, and the fact that Hoichi isn't sure at first whether he can trust his senses, and even the themes around water and the sea and the threats that it can pose feel really resonant here. So now we come to the big question of how many kabutos, or Japanese samurai helmets, we are awarding to Hoichi the Earless. I'm going with a full five kabuto. To me, this is the perfect ghost story. There's a strong basis in historical events, you do have some humor, and the evil goes away at the end. I like it when the evil stays. No! (laughs) But more importantly, it's one of the most beautiful sequences in film that I've ever seen. The two moments that were the most striking to me... One, when the Tyra warriors appear shot full of arrows on the platform of the Great Hall, while others are in battle poses that we see from the first part of the story. And then secondly, after Hoichi is carried off, we see the Tyra ghosts sitting in the cemetery. They slowly rise. The camera switches to a close-up of battered war flags falling into the water. And then it's back to the cemetery with just the tombstones. The fog blows away and the rain starts pouring down. Magic. Yeah, I'm surprised by this, but it's hard for me to disagree with your score. Like I mentioned at the beginning, the film builds tension beautifully, and Hoichi's inner turmoil while he's having these extremely confusing and frightening experiences is really well done, and I think the film actually has some subtle but powerful statements to make about disability and perception and how those things can interact, which I really wasn't anticipating. Five Kabuto works for me, Which surprises me, frankly, because for two people who are pretty thoroughly mind-melded, Laura and I have really wildly different tastes in entertainment. So finally, a few sundry other notes. Right after the Battle of Danoura ends, the narrator explains that in addition to the Tyra haunting the area, the local crabs start looking like they have the faces of the drowned warriors on them. Heike crabs are real, and they're native to Japan. They're also called samurai crabs, 
and it's a local legend that they're the reincarnation of the Tyra. When we see Hoichi playing in the graveyard with the Oni bee floating around him, there are also some of the crabs crawling on him. But my real question is how they taste with Obey. You're such a Marylander. I know. So if you've been following along with our actor count, there are exactly zero returning actors or connections of any kind that we could find for this one. But Lafcadio Hearn actually for a while taught English to the art teacher of the director, Kobayashi. Thanks for listening to Spooky October on Costume Drama Rewind. Next time, we travel to London's East End in 1888 on perhaps the most famous but also most misunderstood murder spree in history.